Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you're physically able, I ask you might that you would stand with me as we read these 12 verses in the second chapter of Matthew. Beginning at verse 1, you'll find the following words. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the where where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came, rest, came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshiped him. Then opened their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You may be seated. Uh, today, this special day, as we celebrate the birth of our Lord, I like to lift as a theme the last part of this passage. Uh, and the theme I like to use today is going home another way, going home another way. Uh, brothers and sisters, I would like to suggest to you that life can essentially be summed up in two words. All of life, if, as we look at it, uh, as we ponder life, <clears throat> all of life can essentially be summed up in two words. Those two words are situation and navigation. Situation and navigation. Each day of life is nothing more than a hodgepodge of both good and bad situations that present one with no other choice but to make an attempt at proper navigation. It's important as we face daily situations, both good and bad, sometimes the good ones are more of a threat and a challenge to us than the bad ones. It's important that we, that we know how to navigate either of these. I like how Ralph Waldo Emerson puts it. He says this. He says, well, Emerson says this, uh, finish each day and be done with it. You have done what you could. Some blunders and absurdities no doubt crept in. Forget them as soon as you can. Tomorrow is a new day. You shall begin it serenely and with too high a spirit to be encumbered with your old nonsense. I love that because it is an accurate uh, navigational 
guide for how we ought to live every day. And there is no doubt that Emerson's quote is quite positive as well as very motivational. Just read it. It's motivational. It lifts you up. But it also, along with those two things, is an open admission that life is indeed filled with many blunders and absurdities, proving that our navigational skills often miss the mark, leaving us between the proverbial rock and hard place. Thus, we have to look at life that way. We have to be cognizant of that. Uh, that hard place, that, that, that our, our, our uh, navigational skills that are oftentimes lacking leave us in, that place uh, where we are incapable of helping ourselves, but rather are in desperate need of divine intervention. Uh, I like to refer to these times not as situations, but as situations. Situations. That's not a, that's not a, I'm not messing that up. That's really what I like. Some of y'all have heard me refer to that before, and I'll explain what I mean by, by that, because there's a difference when you take the you out. Right? The situation is one that you can most of the time navigate yourself out of. But those of us who have lived for any amount of time know that when you take the you out of situation is one that you need divine intervention in order to be able to get out of. And there's, there's just nothing that you can do, Brother Kimmy. It's that, it's that place between the rock and the hard place. The only way out is for God to show up. That's the only way out in our text. In our text from the Gospel according to St. Matthew, this is an accurate description of the condition of humanity at this time. Please allow me, if you will, to offer a brief recap of the state of humanity at this time. Uh, they are in a situation at this place in history. Uh, as you know, it all began in Genesis chapter 3, where human moral innocence totally collapsed through the rebellion of, a of Adam and Eve, bringing the curse of sin on the entire human race. The events of Genesis chapter 3 begin what is a downward spiral that continues to devolve all the way through Malachi to the point to where the Apostle Paul describes the state of affairs in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18 with a collection of Old Testament quotes. You remember, not long ago we studied it right here. Paul says this in Romans chapter 3, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understand, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This, my brothers and sisters, is the situation that humanity finds itself in in the day that we've just read about 
in the gospel according to St. Matthew. Then, after 400 years of what has been described as silence, it wasn't really silence, but it has been described as silence during the intertestamental, intertestamental period, which lasted from the end of Malachi around 420 B.C. to the first century A.D., the promise after this 400 years, the promise solution appears in Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2. Intervenes, shows up in this terrible state and condition. We know it as the Christmas story. We know this intervention as the Christmas story. For the rest of our time together today, I want to talk to you about what the Christmas story is. But before we get to that, I want to say just a few words about what the Christmas story is not. Would y'all pray with me? What the Christmas story is not, because some of us have been bamboozled. <laughs> some of us have been led astray. Some of us have fallen for the banana in the tailpipe. Amen. Some of us have gone astray on this. Let's talk about what the Christmas story is not a fable. It's not a fairy tale. It's not about, here it is, going into debt while bailing Macy's and Dillard's and Nordstrom's out for the year. I, I laugh when people ask me, are you ready for Christmas? Well, yeah, I've been ready for Christmas all year. I'm not, what does that mean? You know what that means most time when people ask you that question? Have you got your Christmas shopping done? I don't base my readiness. So my answer is always yes, or my answer is always I, I hope so, uh, because I don't base my readiness on the amount of gifts that are under my tree. Because if I don't get a chance or if I don't have the money to buy even one, I'm ready for Christmas. Hello, somebody. I asked y'all to pray with me. It's not just about some wise men. It's not just about a baby. It's not just about any of that. Uh, it's about much more than that. So can I share with you five things that the Christmas story is from our text? Five things that the Christmas story is, and they're found right here in Matthew chapters 1 and chapter 2. First thing the Christmas story is, the Christmas story is God with us. God with us. I'm pausing because I, y'all just work with me. Got a lot of activity going on. I'm gonna. <laughs> God with us. That's what the Christmas story is, right? We find evidence of this in Matthew chapter 1. See, y'all had to, excuse me, I'm from the old school. This is not in the notes. And I grew up in the old church where they had the wood floors and, the, the, you know, the, and, and the ushers at the door wouldn't let nobody in when the preacher started preaching. <laughs> if you didn't get in before the sermon started, you had to wait outside. And that's not a knock because I know the kids needed to come back in, but it just distracted me a little bit. <laughs> that's okay. Y'all are good, kids. Y'all all right with me. I'm glad you made it back in here. You can come in anytime you want. <laughs> 
But just excuse the old man because I kind of went back to my old self a little bit. <laughs> the Christmas story is God with us. Uh, it's, what, it's what Matthew talks about in chapter 1, verse 23, when he quotes Isaiah 7, 14. For unto us a child, so, so in, in Matthew uh, chapter 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel meaning God with us. It is God's love summed up in John chapter 3, verse 16. You know John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. That is what the Christmas story is. God with us. It's what John talks about in chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, and then verse 14 when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and John says, Then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Christmas story is God with us. Stories told of a learned professor, a decent and respected man who professed not to believe in God. And he was attempted to teach his children not to believe in God. For some reason, though, he did permit his eight-year-old daughter to attend Sunday school every Sunday. And she believed in God as many children do. One night, the professor was very busy in his study. And his little girl insisted on talking to him. To occupy her time so that she wouldn't interrupt him, he took a long strip of paper with a black crayon. He printed on the paper the words, God is nowhere. He showed the sentence to her, and quickly he cut the paper apart into small pieces, letter by letter. He mixed all the letters together, and he put them in a box. And he said to his eight-year-old daughter, now, honey, put these words back together like I had them. He really was only trying to occupy her time so that she would leave him alone. She began putting the words together, the letters together, and the words together. She put them together quickly, but it didn't come out like he, the sentence he had read. When she put them together, she came up with, not God is nowhere, but God is now here. Same letters, different meaning. And I submit to you that he is here with us. At a time when men like Nebuchadnezzar and others were trying to make themselves God, God made himself a man. Emmanuel is God with us, not God apart from us, not God too busy for us, not God fed up with us, but God with us. He's not the God of other world religions. Some other world religions see God in a totally different light. Hinduism, for instance, uh, for them, God is this undefinable, impersonal, aloof deity, deity called Brahman. Buddhism says that they deny the existence of a personal creator and Lord. The world operates by natural power and law and not by divine command. Shintoism teaches the superiority of Japanese people. Since they are superior and of divine origin, they have no need for a savior. Confucianism teaches that man can do it all by himself, leaving no room for God. Islam 
has God divorced from his creation, so unified to himself that he cannot be associated with creation. But I'm glad. See, I thought y'all, this Christmas, y'all supposed to talk back to me because you already know where I'm going with what I'm getting ready to say. So I should have got some. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that we serve a God that's not like any of those others, but we serve the kind of God that Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, when he says, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in the fashion of man, as man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. Christmas is God with us. But that's not the only thing that, that Christmas is. Christmas is God with us, but Christmas is also a real threat. It's a real threat. I know it because the text helps us to see it. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we see this play out. Chapter 2, by the way, is nothing more than a continuation of the birth narrative of Jesus carried over from chapter 1. We see Jesus being born in verse 25 of chapter 1. Then the story continues in chapter 2. And as the story continues in chapter 2, we find out that the Christmas story and the events of the Christmas story, the birth of Christ, poses a real threat. Verse 1 talks about, it says this, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. Who were, before we get to the threat, who, who were these wise men? It, they were magi, a priestly cast of very wise men from thought to be from Mesopotamia, somewhere in the east, perhaps Persia or Babylonia. They were men skilled in philosophy, in medicine, in religion, and in natural science. They were also soothsayers and interpreters of dreams. They were greatly interested in astrology. Thus, their attention was arrested by this moving star, the star that moved, caught their attention. Traditionally, We've been taught, we've been led to believe that there were only three of these wise men. That's only because later we read that there were three gifts. But the reality is, is that we don't know how many wise men there were. There could have been a thousand of them. Don't know that there was a group of them. And then in verse 2, they say something interesting. In verse 2, this is what they say. Where is he? who has been born king of the Jews. They ask this question, this age-old question that all of us at times have asked, where is he? Because we're looking for him. They, they come from the east looking for this Christ child who's been born king of the Jews. These men from the east, these wise men were Gentiles who came to Jerusalem looking for the Christ child who, by the way, at this time, we're not exactly sure how old Jesus was. 
Not sure how old he was. He was still very young, likely still an infant. But we don't know how old he was. We don't know how old he was. But they came looking for him. So then, why, why and how does Christmas pose a threat? Where do we see that in the text? We know who the wise men are. We know, know that they came. We know what led them there. Where's the threat? The threat's in verse 3. Here's the threat. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Christmas is a threat, poses a threat. Herod gets word and is troubled. He's threatened. Herod, who is Herod? Herod is the great ruler who ruled over Palestine at this time because of his loyalty to Rome. He was very cruel and always suspicious that someone would attempt to overthrow him. In fact, because of this, he had one of his wives, one of his ten wives killed and also three of his oldest sons. He was a, a, an evil tyrant who was always on the lookout thinking that somebody was after his spot. Herod then gets this word and he is freaked out. And the whole city is terrified with him. The wise men tell him that a new king has been born. He gets this word that a new king has been born, and he panics and he freaks out. A new king? I'm the king. But Herod's he's already the king, and the whole city is terrified when they get this new news because there is a new king in town. Not only a king, but the king of kings has been born, and he's made, made it on the scene. A new king, and Herod is threatened because of this new king. So he sends the wise men to find this Jesus who he believes is threatening his throne. Even after, he, after his, his scheme is found out and foiled and he doesn't get to do what he wanted to do, we know he is severely threatened because if you keep reading, you'll find out that after the Magi don't come back, that he sends word that all the male children, two years old and under, because they didn't come back with Jesus. He says, I'll tell you what, I'll fix it. I'll kill, have all the little boys who were born two years and under because of the time that it took them to travel. He wasn't sure, so he wanted to try to get everybody. I'll have them all killed. He is threatened. His plans are threatened because of Christmas. So he does it. But Jesus escapes unharmed. Christmas, the coming of Christ, poses a threat to the plans of the enemy. Not just in Herod's day, but Christmas as we see it today poses a threat to the plans of the enemy. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Christmas poses a threat to the power of sin. Because of Christmas, sin doesn't have the power that it once had. Because of Christmas, there's a threat to bondage. Because of Christmas, there's a threat to defeat. Because of Christmas, there's a threat to death. Because of Christmas, there's a threat to the gates of hell. Because of Christmas, there's a threat to hopelessness. Because of Christmas, there's a threat to condemnation. Because of Christmas... There's a threat. Christmas is God with us. Christmas is a real threat. But then also Christmas is the fulfillment of prophecy. 
the fulfillment of prophecy. We know that, but it's in the text, right? Prophecy not only foretold uh, that Jesus would come. We see that in chapter 1, verse 23, which is a quote from Isaiah 7, 14. We see it also in, pla- in, in, in various places throughout Scripture. We see it in places like Isaiah 9, 6. It says, for unto us a child is born, unto us uh, a, a, a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders, his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His foretold prophecy foretells that he would come. But not only does prophecy foretell that he would come, prophecy foretells where he would come. It's in the text in verses 5 and 6. Look at verses 5 and 6 in Matthew chapter 2. This is what it says. They told him, uh, so Herod calls the the scribes and the Pharisees together to try to figure out something. And and, in verses 5 and 6, it says, try to figure out where Jesus will be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means last among the rulers of Judah, For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod calls the chief priests and the scribes together to see if they can help him figure out where this new king is supposed to be born. The scribes and the teachers of the law knew exactly where the Messiah was to be born, for they knew the scriptures very well. The the scribes probably had most of the scriptures memorized. And they, they, they remembered that the prophet Micah foretold that from the little town of Bethlehem in the land of Judah, there would come the ruler who would shepherd, who would be the shepherd of Israel. And so verse 6, which I've just read to you, is a direct quote from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. The scribes, the Pharisees knew by heart. They already knew this. And so when Herod calls them in, they quickly give him an answer. It'll happen in Bethlehem. According to the prophets, according to Scripture, that's where he will be born. Uh, We have have another take, right, on this prophecy of where Jesus would be born. Uh, Dr. Chris Walker, Dr. Chris Walker, who's one of our resident theologians, offers an additional, very plausible theory regarding Bethlehem. Chris contends that for centuries the Jewish pilgrims had come to pilgrimage uh, to the temple in Jerusalem to make sacrifices according to the law, and that it was difficult for them to bring the required male unblemished lamb with them. So they, Chris says that it's likely that they purchased Sacrificial lambs from the shepherds in Bethlehem, which was just outside of the city uh, of Jerusalem. Since Christ came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, the final sacrificial lamb needed to be born in the same place as the lambs of the historical sacrifices came from. I say it's just further evidence of the significance of this little town in Judea, where the Savior had been prophesied that he would be born, and where all the sacrificial lambs before him had been taken from. Jesus fulfilled all the law when he came and was born, and later lived and died, but he was born 
according to prophecy in Bethlehem. So Christmas is God with us. Christmas is a real threat. Christmas is the fulfillment of prophecy, but also Christmas is a reason for true worship. Christmas, now now you got to catch this, you got to catch the A, because I said it's a reason. And some of you are wondering already, why isn't there a D there? <laughs> I know you're wondering. I almost put a D there, but then something said to me while I was typing. Something said, no, this shouldn't be a D. This should be an A, because if we make it a D, then we forget about the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Because if we stop at his birth, we leave something out. But we ought to worship because he was born. It is a reason for true worship. It's not the only reason, but it is a reason. It's in verses 9 through 11. And in verses 9 through 11, we see the reaction of the Magi when they finally find Jesus. They didn't simply, so here's the thing about these, these wise men. They didn't simply come looking for Christ, for the Christ child, because they were curious about him. They had other motives. They had other reasons. In verse 2 tells us, that the reason that they were looking for Christ was to worship him. It's at the beginning of, the, of, of this chapter. They came looking so that they could worship him. That worship was their motive. Uh, as I stated earlier, these men were Gentiles from a faraway country. Some have said that when Paul went on his first missionary journey, or when Peter went to share the gospel with Cornelius, the first Gentiles were uh, converted to Christianity. But the reality is that it's likely that the first Gentile converts were these wise men. How do we know it? The text helps us to see it. It's, it begins in, in, in verse 10, in verse 9. Let's read it. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, it went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gold, gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They, in verse 11, fall down and worship him. So what does true worship look like based on the actions of these wise men? How can they help us understand what worship ought to be? How can they help us understand how we should worship today? Well, I, I, I submit to you this. Their worship was sincere. Their worship was heartfelt. Their worship was passionate. I know it's true because in verse 2, they unabashedly made their intentions known immediately when they showed up on the scene. You remember what they said in verse 2? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When they show up, they tell everybody, this is why we're here. We've come so that we can worship this king. It's unabashedly sincere, and then we find out that it's sincere because they are overcome with joy in verse 10. As they, as they arrive at the place, they're following this star that's moving. Can you imagine? Stars, I mean, we can't see them, and they might move, but we, you know, 
it's beyond our vision. But they're following a star. It's almost like the Shekinah glory of God. It's almost like the children of Israel, the, the Hebrews, being led through the wilderness by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. God was leading them by this moving star, and when the star stops, they know they've arrived at the place. They arrive not at a manger. He's in a house now, and they arrive at this house, and as soon as they, the star stops and they get there, before they even go in and see the child, they are excited about what's happening in there because they know that the Christ child is in there. And so they're worshiping already, uh, even when they're right. They have great joy, verse 10 says, when they're right. Not only was their worship sincere, their worship was sacrificial. They sacrificed their time. It, it, we don't know how long of a journey it was, but we do know that it was a very long journey. Likely, it took them months to travel from their land to Jerusalem because uh, they didn't have airplanes, they didn't have cars, they didn't have any. They, they had to travel by animal and on foot, and so it likely took them months to travel, maybe the thousand miles it took for them to get from their homeland to this place. They sacrificed their time because they were on their way to worship the king. They gave up. Their own personal agenda. They gave up time with their friends. They gave up hanging out. They gave up even working. They gave up everything, time with their family, to take this long, months-long trip just to see him, just to worship at his feet. They sacrificed their time. Not only did they sacrifice their time, they sacrificed their safety. It was likely a dangerous journey. You can just imagine being out there on the plane traveling with robbers, with all kinds of deadly things. You can just imagine it was dangerous. They gave up. They sacrificed their safety. They sacrificed their time. Not only that, they sacrificed their resources. Look at verse 11. Again, it says that they offered him some very costly gifts. These gifts were not cheap. These gifts were expensive items, and they sacrificed of their resources so that they could worship in truth and in spirit this king that had come on the scene. And so, text says, they gave him three gifts. It's where we get the three wise men idea. There could have been a whole lot more. But they bought, they, they, no matter how many of them there were, they only brought three gifts. And they brought these three gifts for three specific reasons. Because these three gifts were to identify who this baby would be. The three gifts, they gave him gold, which signified his kingship. They gave him frankincense, which signified his priesthood. Because frankincense was a costly perfume used to anoint in the, in, the, in, the, in the time of sacrifice, uh, it was a cut, and it signified his priesthood. And then they gave him myrrh, which signified that he had come to life in order to die. He had come to earth knowing that he was on his way to the cross because myrrh 
was an ointment used to embalm dead bodies. It signified that this baby has come and he's only going to be here a while because he's focused. He's fixed. He's fixed on the cross. They gave, the, 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 the worship was sincere. The worship was sacrificial. They, they had the spirit of true worship because Christmas is a reason for true worship. Christmas is a reason. Y'all don't forget that A. Because if you get that A, we're going to have to cancel Easter. <laughs> Not going to be able to have Easter if we, we're just going to have Christmas all year long. Don't forget the A. There's, there's not a V there because there are other reasons. Amen, somebody. Y'all going to make me tell you what the reasons are. He, he died one Friday. <laughs> they laid him in a barroom tomb. He laid there all night Friday, all day Saturday, all night Saturday night. But early I had to get me an early in on Christmas. <laughs> Some of y'all don't get that. <laughs> early Sunday morning. He got up with all power in his hand. That's the, the, that's the reason for true worship. Christmas is God with us. Christmas is a real threat. Christmas is the fulfillment of prophecy. Christmas is a reason for true worship. But lastly, I need to tell you that Christmas is a demand for a new direction. Christmas is a demand for a new direction. I know it's true. Look at what the text says in verse 12. Verse 12 says this, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. God comes to them in a dream and warns them of Herod's trick. Upon receiving this revelation, they decide to take a different route home to avoid Herod. But I see another meaning of going home another way. I see another meaning. Uh, and, and here's what I see. An encounter with Christ demands a new direction. Not only did they take a different physical route, their lives would never be the same after they met Jesus. In fact, no person in history, in the history of the world, has ever had an encounter with Jesus and left the same way. I need more of y'all to say amen than that. Nobody in the history of the world has had any kind of an encounter with Jesus and left the same way they were when they met him. I've got some evidence. Paul, who was then Saul, met Jesus on the road to Damascus, on his way to persecute Christians. And Jesus had a profound impact on his life. And when he got up from the ground and went in blinded to the city, his life would never be the same. Blind Bartimaeus sat by the roadside begging, and he heard that Jesus was coming through. And he cries out, Jesus, the son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops what he's doing. And heals him of his blindness. His life was never the same. Zacchaeus, who's a tax collector, a hated tax collector, climbs up in a sycamore tree. I need some of y'all to help me. Y'all know these stories. Y'all know my voice is not good. I need your help. Climbs up in a sycamore tree, and Jesus looks up and says, come down. This day, salvation has come to you. And he and his household were never the same after having an encounter with Jesus. 
There's a lame man who sat at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. He couldn't walk. He couldn't move. He was sitting there waiting on the, the moving of the water. Jesus comes through and says, do you want to be made whole? And his life was never the same. There's a woman. Y'all help me. My voice not good. Y'all finish this sentence for me. There's a woman. My Lord. Y'all Bible readers. There's a woman with an issue of blood that she had in her body for 12 long years. She had spent all of her money trying to find a healing and a solution for her issue. Jesus is on his way somewhere else to Jairus' house. But the woman makes her way through the crowd. Bible says, she says, my voice is failing again, y'all help me. If I could just touch the heel of his garment, I don't need to hug him, I don't need to, I don't need to grab him. If I could just touch the hem of his garment, I know that I'll be made whole. She touches him, and he stops what he's doing, and he says, somebody, somebody touch me. And all virtue, he says, goes out of him. She is never the same. Twelve disciples who are fishermen, tax collectors, and all those other kinds of things, when they meet Jesus, they drop their nets. They get up from the tax collector's table. They leave all of the old things behind. And because Jesus says, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. And their lives were never the same. Okay, I've missed some of y'all because some of y'all are not Bible readers. Or some of y'all are, but you just didn't want to get with me. So let me see if I can come down your street. It's not just people in Scripture. Y'all going to help me? It's not just people in Scripture. Uh, you and me can testify that when we met Jesus, when we met Jesus, our lives have never been the same. If I would allow you to come up here and if you would do it, you could tell some stories. You can tell a story about the time when you felt like there was no hope and you had nowhere to turn and you called on Jesus and he answered your faintest cry. He came to see about you. He stepped in the hospital room. He stepped in the jail cell. He stepped wherever it was that you were. And he came to see about you. I'm not just talking about you. He came to see about me too. And my life has never been the same because an encounter with Jesus calls for a change of direction. And when you meet Jesus, you'll go home a different way. I'm going to close like I, all, like I oftentimes like to with a poem. I like this poem. I think it puts a bow on what we've talked about today. It's by Gene Carter Cochran. This is what Cochran says as it relates to going home another way. He says this, 
And, and what, what's happening in this poem is that Cochrane is describing a dialogue between the wise men and a stranger. A fictional dialogue between the wise men and a stranger. And here's what happens. The stranger says, wise man, tell me what did you see that made you travel so far? Stranger, the answer is, I followed the radiant light of a splendid flaming star. Well, wise man, tell me what did you hear in that land where you did stray? Stranger, I heard an angel song that rings in my heart always. Wise man, tell me what did you find that made your countenance so bright? Stranger, I found a heavenly king born on that holy night. And because of that, my countenance is not the same. Because of that, I now have pep in my step that I didn't used to have. Because of that, I have hope where I was hopeless. Because of that, stranger, I met a man who changed my life. The baby that I met that holy night. Because of that, I went home, Kimla, a different way. Lord, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, for this season that we recognize all of the seasons. Thank you for the birth of our Savior that has caused all of us to be different. Thank you, Lord. We magnify you, glorify you, we worship you. We're not interested in the bottom line of Macy's. We're interested in glorifying you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.